Our sermon text for today is from the book of Judges, chapters 13 through 15. We're going through a summer series through the book of Judges, and uh, our texts are a little longer than usual, so you will really benefit from keeping your, book, or your Bibles open to, our, to these chapters, because we will not open our sermon with a reading from Scripture as we normally do, but we'll read much of the text throughout the sermon you may have heard that there is a new sports team in Florida. The team is called Inter-Miami. If you haven't heard of it, you either live under a rock or you simply don't care about soccer. <laughs> Perhaps both. Inter-Miami was founded in 2018, and it really has been a look-luster team in the Major League Soccer, MLS. But everything changed this past Friday. Inter-Miami managed to hire Lionel Messi, arguably the greatest soccer player in the world, and the team that was last ranked in the MLS now has become the apple of the eyes of every soccer fanatic in the world. Inter Miami is already the fifth most popular North American team in all of sports in social media. All of this because one man decided to join the team. In order to join Inter Miami, Massey turned down an offer of $1.3 billion to play for Al Hilal, a team from Saudi Arabia. In Miami, he's making a meager $35 million. <laughs> this past Friday was Massey's debut. He joined the game in the second half, and if you don't know anything about soccer, you must know that there are only two halves. So he joined at the end. And at the last minute, in classic Messi fashion, Messi scored a perfect goal from a free kick, giving Inter Miami the victory. These are great days to be an Inter Miami fan, and if you're not, don't worry, most of us were not either just a couple of days ago. So, the time is ripe to join the bandwagon. But although Messi has brought an incredible burst of energy to a struggling team, it was clear from the very beginning that the reason why Messi was leaving the European leagues is because he is really walking towards Retirement. Inter Miami will not be able to rely on Messi forever. Why? Because men are like grass. They're here today and gone tomorrow. Psalm 103, 15 and 16. As for men, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field for the wind passes over it and it's gone and its place knows it no more. Today we're going to meet a judge that was strong, very strong, and he strengthened a very weak people. But even in his strength, he was unable to ultimately deliver the people of God from all their enemies. He was strong, but he was self-absorbed. His strength gave the people great victories, but his pride led to his great humiliation. 
Today we'll meet Samson. And the story of Samson ought to remind us that there is no such a thing as strong men of God. There is only a strong God who empowers weak men to accomplish great things for his glory and for the good of his people. Now, before we go any further, let's review a little bit. We've been in the book of the Judges for several weeks now. We will be in the book of Judges for four more weeks, including this one, and then we're back in Mark. Okay, we're going, we're going back to the New Testament. The book of Judges is a book of warriors that God used to deliver his people. So far, we've met five major judges and six minor judges. Throughout the book, we've seen Israel go through what is called the judges cycle. At the beginning of every major judge, we see a cycle of sin, servitude, supplication, and salvation. We've also seen that as we've progressed through the book, the judges and the people become increasingly godless. We call this moral decadence. Israel was to be a light post to the nations so that the nations could learn the way of the Lord. But instead, the nations, especially the peoples of Canaan and their false gods, created a home in Israel's heart. So we've seen progressively throughout the book what theologians call the canonization of Israel. Israel is becoming like Canaan. Samson is the last judge, so he will complete six major judges, six minor judges. He is also the most important judge of them all. The book of Judges reserves four chapters for Samson. And we get his story, unlike all other judges, from birth to death. Arguably, Samson is the main human character in this book. Unlike other judges, Sam Samson was not a military leader. He was a lone ranger. He never led an army. He was the army. Samson is the most immoral of all the judges. He demonstrates very little reliance on God and barely acknowledges him throughout the entire book. He had, a, he had a low view of holiness and his fascination for ungodly foreign women ultimately led to his destruction. Out of all the judges, in some ways, Samson was the most unlike Christ. However, as we're going to see this week and the next, in some ways, no other judge points us to Christ like Samson. So today, as we consider Samson's birth, in the first 20 years of his judging of Israel, three words will guide us. Each word will correspond to one of the chapters. The words are calling, rebellion, and vengeance. So let's consider Samson's calling. Chapter 13 opens up with a typical statement 
for the beginning of every major judge cycle. We heard this statement in the introduction, and before every judge we've heard, major judge, we've heard this statement again. And the people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. You would think by now the people would have learned. And then we read, So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines, for 40 years. 40 years is a long time. We see in this verse sin and servitude. But the element that is missing from the judge's cycle is supplication. This moral decadence has come to a point in which the people don't even cry out to the Lord Anymore. As we're going to see, the people actually think that the Philistines are Lord over them. This is the first time the people do not cry out to the Lord. But here, we still see the mercy of God. Because in spite of the fact that the people do not cry out to the Lord or even acknowledge Him, the Lord still provides for them a Savior. In verse 2, something unique happens. It's a little bit of an abrupt transition in the book. For the first time, we hear the birth story of a judge. His mother was barren, which is a common theme in Scripture. Sarah, Rachel, Anna, Hannah. And she was promised a son, which, which points us forward. Not to the barrenness of Mary. You see, it's very hard for a barren woman to conceive. But it's impossible for the virgin to conceive. Unless God makes possible that which is impossible. This child... Special Samson was called to devote, to be devoted to God from the womb. The call to devotion is a call to holiness. Sometimes we immediately associate the word holy with separation. That's definitely one way. But another way to understand the word holy is to, is to, is to think of it in terms of devotion, which is the opposite of separation. Devotion is an invitation for us to dwell with God. The call of this child was to be symbolized by a Nazarite vow. We have time to go explain the whole Nazarite vow here. If you want to go home and read Leviticus 6, you'll read more about this vow. But the Nazarite vow was a vow that was usually given temporarily so people could demonstrate their devotion to the Lord. If someone would like to dedicate themselves to the Lord for a season, they would take up the Nazareth vow. But Samson was to dedicate his entire life to the Lord. So the Nazareth vow was to be on him from birth. The Nazareth vow was comprised of basically three things. A Nazareth was to abstain from all alcohol. Was to, was to not, never come into contact with a dead body human or otherwise, and was to never cut his hair. It's interesting that this 
instruction is not given to Samson, but it is given to his parents. His father's name was Manoah, and we do not know his mother's name. But here's what we learn from this. The faith that was to be born in Samson first needed to be born in his parents. They needed not only to keep the Nazareth vow his mom needed when he was in the womb. They needed to teach him to live in light of that vow. This is a good reminder that the best way to infuse faith in the hearts of our children is to embrace the faith Deeply in our hearts first. 2 Timothy 1.5. Paul, speaking to his disciple Timothy, I am reminded of your sincere faith. A faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Louise and your mo in your mother Eunice. And now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. Children are very good at telling when we're not honest. And if we want to raise our children to know the Lord, we must first know the Lord and guide our lives in light of that. But this call to be devoted to God was greater than the call of the Nazarites. The call to be devoted to God was also the call to be devoted to God's people. Notice in verse 5, the angel says, And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. This child would be the child that would begin saving God's people. Even in this announcement, we see that Samson's work would be great, but it wouldn't be complete. Samson destroyed so many of the enemies of God, the great enemy, the one that lives within sin. Not only did Samson not deliver the people from that enemy, he succumbed miserably to that enemy himself. The parallels are incredible. An angel announces the birth of Jesus to Mary and Joseph. But listen to how the angel puts it differently when it comes to Jesus' mission. Matthew 121, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. There is an assurance to Christ's work that rests on no one else's work. Samson will begin to save the people, but Jesus will save his people. There is an assurance that we find in the work of Christ that we will not find in the work of anyone else. Christ saves. No one else does. Samson would go on to give up his life and kill many Philistines. But Samson would stay dead, just like all other judges. Christ went on to give up his life and saved many for the glory of his name. And his salvation was not only good for this world, his salvation was good for the world, 
to come because Jesus defeated the great enemy sin on the cross. As he takes it upon himself, not his own sin, but yours and mine. And when Jesus dies, sin dies with us. But Jesus does not stay dead just like all other judges. He raises from the dead. And he proclaims victory. And friends, that is the victory that we need. We need a Savior who will not just help us a little bit in this life. Friends, if you're looking for church because you need a little bit of help with your finances, you need a little bit of help with your marriage, you need a little help with your professional life, friends, we can help with all of those things, but all of those things will amount to nothing if you don't find help for the sin that lingers in your hearts. Confess your sins to Christ. Run to Him and rest in His complete, finished work. Look not to man, but look to God. The announcement of this baby was made by the angel of the Lord. Some believe this to be a physical representation of the Lord Himself. Others believe that this is a messenger. By the way, the word angel means messenger, who carries the authority of the Lord. Unfortunately, we won't settle this debate today, but regardless of the identity of the angel of the Lord, he carried a message from God to Samson's parents. And notice how concerned Samson's parents are to understand the message from the angel of the Lord. Look at verse 8. Then Manoah prayed, and the Lord said, O Lord, prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, Please let the men of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with a child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah. And the angel of God came again to the woman and she sat in the field. As she, she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah rose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, Now, when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life? And what is his mission? Manoah understood that if his son was to fulfill God's call on his life, he needed to raise his son for that purpose, he needed to understand the Word of God. Friends, if we're going to raise our children to know the Lord, we need to draw near to the Lord ourselves. One of the greatest spiritual gifts we can give to our children is our constant prayer and devotion before God on their behalf. This week we've had VBS, and what a great time we had. We're so thankful for all the volunteers and all that dedicated so much of themselves to make VBS work. Parents, we're thankful that you're here today and we're thankful that you entrusted your children to us this week. We hope that VBS would help them to know the Lord. But remember, VBS is but once a year. But your children need constant exposure 
to the gospel. And who else is better equipped to expose your children to the gospel than you? If you're a member of a church that preaches the gospel faithfully, praise the Lord, go there next week and commit yourself to your church deeply. If you don't have a church that's faithful, commit yourself to constantly be under the preaching of the word. And let the faith that is being built in you influence the hearts of your children. VBS this week was a one-time gift that you gave to your children. But you are the gift that keeps giving. Manoah is here modeling godly parenting to us. We should follow his example, asking the Lord, what is your mission for my child's life? And how can I help them accomplish this mission? As we continue in the text, we see that Manoah and his wife, they honor the angel of the Lord and the promise that the barren woman would bear a son is fulfilled. Now, if we're reading this story for the first time, in light of this incredible birth story that in many ways points forward to the birth story of Christ himself and of other men like, Sam, like uh, Samuel, we would expe expect this child to be an example of morality. And spirituality. But as soon as we meet Samson in chapter 14, we find the opposite of what we would expect. So let's turn now to chapter 14 and let us consider Samson's rebellion. Samson was fascinated by a place called Timnah. Timnah was a Philistine town. There he met a Philistine woman whose name we do not know that caught his eye. His parents discouraged him from pursuing the Philistine woman. Instead he said, are there not women among your people that you should pursue? But in verse, five, in verse 3 he says to his father, Get her for me. Why? For she is right in my eyes. It was not lawful for a Jewish man to marry an unbelieving Gentile woman. But Samson was not interpreting the world, the world in light of God's word. His eyes were his moral compass. Rebellion first begins when we reject the wisdom of God and begin doing things that are right in our own eyes. We must hear what the Lord says and believe Him when He says something is right or something is wrong and guide our lives according to those principles. Verse 3 anticipates the great indictment that all of Israel would receive in the book of Judges. We'll hear this phrase four times. In the next three weeks, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. 
Look at verse 4. This whole arrangement for Samson to meet the Philistine woman was not beyond the control and sovereignty of the Lord. Why? Because through Samson's rebellion, God would destroy his enemies and save his people. God uses every means to accomplish his good purposes, even the rebellion of men. Was Samson meant for evil? God meant, not allowed, meant for good. When we look back at the story of Joseph, Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers. And he goes to Egypt after suffering much. He succeeds and he leads Egypt and his brothers come to Egypt. And Joseph reveals himself to his brothers and he says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Same word, same word. God is not a God who allows history to unravel itself and hopes for the best. God orchestrates every event in history for His glory and for the good of His people. So, it is right for the writer of Judges to say that God meant for Samson to do what he did, not because God gives his approval for evil, but because evil, even evil, accomplishes the good purposes of God. And we're going to see this unfolding. Samson's initial rebellion became his habitual rebellion. He visited Timnah three times in our passage. In verse 1, in verse 5, and in verse 8. This place enticed him. This woman had him. Samson didn't just sin. He became a slave of sin. Samson in rebellion also breaks his Nazarite vow. In one of his trips to Timnah, he is confronted by a lion. And with his bare hands, he kills the lion. A few days later, he passes by the lion again and sees that the bees have made a hive in the carcass of the lion. So, so he scrapes the dead body of the lion and eats the honey. Samson, as a part of his vow, was told that he was not to touch dead bodies. But he does. Later in verse 10, down in Timnah again, he throws a party. And this is important because the word here is not just a word for a party. This is a drinking party. It, it is a party that is designed for unbridled drinking. Samson was told in his vow that he was to abstain from all alcohol, but he doesn't. And indicative of this rebellion, we see that Samson has become friends with his foes. Look at verse 11. As soon as the people saw him, they brought 30 companions to be with him. But sin is never a faithful companion. It always reveals itself as an enemy at the end. The enemy that he was called to destroy became his companions. Notice starting verse 12, 
how comfortable Samson felt with his companions. And Samson said to them, let me now put a riddle to you, if you can tell me what it is, within the seven days of the feast, and find out, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me 30 linens of garment and 30 changes of clothes. This is a business transaction based on a riddle. So they said to him, put your riddle that we may hear it. And he said to them, out of the eater came something sweet, out of the strong came something to eat, out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days they could not solve the riddle. This is a way that Samson is boasting on his might and on his strength. But the Bible tells us that the mighty man ought not to boast on his strength. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he knows the Lord. Verse 15. And on the fourth day they said to Samson's wife, Entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? 16. And Samson's wife wept over him and said, You only hate me. You do not love me. You have put a riddle to my people, and you have not told me what it is. And he said to her, Behold, I have not told you. I have not told my father nor my, nor my mother. And shall I tell you? She wept before him the seven days that their feast lasted. And on the seventh day, he told her. Why? Because she pressed him hard. Samson was strong physically. Oh, but he was so weak internally. Then she told the riddle to her people. And the men of the city said to him, On the seventh day before the sun went down, What is stronger than honey? What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. So Samson is wronged. His wife, whom had him chosen a wife faithfully, she should have given him full allegiance. Instead, she prefers his unfaithful companions. And Samson is betrayed. So Samson went down to Ashkelon, killed 30 men, and took the spoils to pay his debt. He went back to his father's house, and his father-in-law gave his wife to his best man. Now Samson is ready for revenge. So let's consider Samson's revenge. We saw a few weeks ago that Gideon was thirsty for revenge as well. When the man of Penuel refused to help him as he pursued Zimda and Zalmunna, he promised to come back and destroy them. Back then we said that vengeance is when we don't trust the Lord to correct the injustices we suffer, so we take justice in our own hands. This is exactly what Samson is about 
to do. But listen to what the Apostle Paul says, Romans 12, verse 19. Behold, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Vengeance is justice that does not proceed from faith. Vengeance is born from personal offense. But God calls us to have faith that He is just and that He will right every wrong. Friends, we have all been wronged in this life. We have all faced injustice in this life. But the call that we have in Christ is not to pursue justice with our own hands, but it is instead to trust that the Lord will one day bring perfect justice to all wrongdoing. Friends, we need to understand that when we pursue justice with our own hands, we look just like Samson. And that is not good. Because God tells us that there is, a, there is a day that is appointed for the judgment of every man. And no idle word will go uncounted for. Do we believe that? If we do, can we have faith in the Lord? And can we live forgiving rather than pursuing revenge? My question to you is... Do you need to forgive someone? Revenge is like holding on to a piece of live coal, hoping that that will harm another person. But faith is letting go of that coal and letting God decide what to do with it. Understanding that if God was to avenge himself over us, we would be doomed. But we are recipients by faith of the mercy of Christ. Well, let's look at Samson's revenge starting in verse 1 of chapter 15. And after some days, at the time of wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat. And he said, I will go into my wife in the chamber. But her father would not allow him to go. And her father said, I, I really thought that you utterly hated her. So I gave her to your companion." Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please take her instead. And Samson said to them, This time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. So Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took torches. I don't know if you ever tried to catch one fox. It's very hard. 300. Meanwhile, you're holding torches. That's an incredible feat. And he turned them tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails. And when he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stacked grain and the standing grain as well as the olive orchards. It's interesting that Samson punishes the Philistines with fire. Fire was the punishment for the sexual deviance of Sodom and Gomorrah. Fire is the eternal punishment that all those who do not have the Spirit will experience in hell. Fire here reminds us of a man whose passions run out of control. So the Philistines 
responded with more vengeance. Let's continue in verse 6. Then the Philistines said, Who has done this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnites, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. And the Philistines came, came up and burned her and her father with fire. More fire. More men whose passions are out of control. Do you notice what's going on here? There is no difference between what Samson does and what the Philistines do. They react the same. The Philistines react as though there is no God. But so does Samson. There is no difference between Israel and Canaan. There's no mark of holiness. There's no consulting with the Lord. Friends, we must be careful that we don't respond to the world with the vocabulary of the world. We must be careful that we don't respond to the world with the vices of the world. We must be careful that as we see a world that is wicked... We don't find ourselves practicing the same wickedness. The people of God are called to be marked by holiness in how we speak, in how we act, in how we treat others. We fight sin, but we fight sin with righteousness and not unrighteousness. So Samson strikes down the Philistines and in spite of his terrible sins and vices, Samson is slowly destroying the enemies of the Lord. And they have no answer to him. They have no idea what to do with Samson. So they go after the people of Judah and demand that they hand over Samson. So look at the interaction between Samson and the people of Judah, starting in verse 11. Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the clefts of the rock at Atom and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? Are they? Are they rulers over God's people? No, God is ruler over all. Not only that, God has provided a Savior, powerful like Samson, to deliver Israel. And Israel recognizes the Philistines as rulers over them. Not only was Samson's sense of justice completely disconnected from the justice of God, the sense of security from the men of Israel was completely disconnected from the hand of God. What difference is there between Israel and Canaan at this point? Israel's leader is faithless. And Israel itself is faithless. What distinguishes us from the world is the fact is the faith we have. If we call ourselves God's people but live without faith, we deceive ourselves. Friends, who rules 
over us. Is not the Lord Lord of all? If we put our hope in the man, if we put our hope in man, we will not be able to persevere in our faith. If our hope for our society sits in the oval office of the White House, we are to be pitied. Instead, listen to Psalm 121, verses 1 and 2. Lift up your eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. But Israel did not trust the Lord or the Savior that the Lord provided for them. So they bound Samson with ropes and handed him over to the Philistines. And yet the Lord gives Samson an incredible victory. It's an interesting picture that we have here. The picture of the people of Israel delivering their Savior to be judged by wicked men. He is rendered useless because he's bound. That's what we see with Jesus, isn't it? We see with Jesus, Jesus being handed over to be judged by wicked men. Man, where is the resurrection in the story of Samson? It's right here. He's useless. He's powerless. He's handed over to be judged. But look at verse 14. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And the robes that were on his arms became as flax that has caught fire in his and his bonds melted off his hands. That is the resurrection. That even though, even though Samson is handed over to be judged by the Philistines, the Spirit of the Lord gives him power. And he is able to overcome his cords. And look at what happens. The victory and he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey and put out his hand and took it. And with it, he struck a thousand men. What an odd weapon, isn't it? The jawbone of a donkey reminds us of Shemgar that we met in chapter 3, who killed 600 Philistines with an ox gold. This is not a weapon of war. It's not a sword, a spear, or a bow and arrow. No, it's just a piece of bone that he found by the wayside. Samson didn't win this battle because he was superior in weapons. As a matter of fact, we often think of Samson as a strong and muscular man, but the Bible doesn't actually describe Samson to us. If you search images of Samson, he looks like one of those guys who go over here to crunch fitness and take private coaching from Phil. But it is not his muscles who won the battle. No matter how much you can deadlift, bench press, or back squats, you can work out your muscles your whole life. You will never kill a thousand men. Samson might have been a very skinny and weak-looking man. His strength came not from muscles or weapons. His strength came from the Spirit. And the Spirit of the Lord 
rushed upon him. As a matter of fact, we hear this about Samson three times. He's the only judge that we hear that the Spirit rushed him three times. The Lord enables Samson to accomplish victory. Friends, we said this earlier, we say this again. There's no such a thing as a strong man of God. There are only weak men who accomplish great things for the glory of God and for the good of God's people through the power of God's Spirit. This is good news because the only qualification necessary to accomplish great things for God is weakness. And guess what? We bring an abundance of that to the Lord. Weakness that leads us to rely solely on the work of the Spirit. So do you want to accomplish great things for God? Good news. You qualify. Come to God and He will empower you. Now our text ends today with Samson, the strong man, being reminded of his weakness. The last few verses in our text really remind Samson that if the Lord does not provide for him, his strength amounts to nothing. For the first time in verse 18, Samson acknowledges the Lord. And it's interesting because in the beginning of our passage, we did not hear Israel crying out to the Lord for the first time, but here Israel through its leader, through its representative, through its judge, Samson himself, here Israel cries out to the Lord. Verse 18, and he was very thirsty and he called upon the Lord and said, You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servants, and shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? After all the fighting, after all the victory, all he needs is water. Water is very simple. If you can find it, you're fine. If you can't, you're in trouble. Samson needs water, but he can't find it. And Samson is not God. He cannot produce water, so he cries out to the Lord for help. And the Lord answers in verse 19, And God split open the hollow place that is in Lehi, and water came out from it. And when he drank, his spirit returned, and he revived. Water from the rock. Just as God had provided water for Israel in the past. Samson is just a regular Israelite who needs the Lord to provide water out of the rock for him to simply survive. There's nothing special about Samson apart from God. Israel drank from the rock in the desert and we're told in 1 Corinthians 11 that that rock, 1 Corinthians 10, that that rock was Christ. You may read the story of Samson and think, what a unique man. But Samson was not unique. He was just like you and I. Frail, weak, and totally dependent on God. Friend, are you living your life trusting your own strength? Are you fighting your enemies with your own might? The life of a strong man, the life of a fighter is exhausting. But God provides for our every need. Are you weary of the battle? Are you at the end of your rope? Friends, do, do I have good news for you? 
Christianity is not for the strong, but for the weak. Christianity is not for those who trust in the one, is not for those who trust in themselves, but for those who trust in the one who is strong, the one who fights for his people and wins. The one who, unlike Samson, does not just begin to save his people, but the one who accomplishes completely the salvation of his people. Christ would go on to die on the cross, paying for the sin of every man. But Christ doesn't just take upon himself sin. He grants righteousness. And this righteousness that Christ grants is also depicted by water that we hear in the Gospel of John chapter 7. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Friend, would you put your weapons down? Would you lay down your false impression that you're strong? Would you come to Christ and rest in Him? Because Christ does not call us to accomplish the work that He began. Christ calls us to enjoy the work that He's finished. So we don't have to be strong. We actually have to be weak and say, Lord, rescue me. Give me of the water that leads me to eternal life so I can be holy yours and this invitation is for you today to trust in christ we pray you do would you pray with me father how dependent we are on christ there's never a stronger man than samson himself and yet so frail lord so often we think of ourselves as strong but we're not we're frail father i pray that you would help us know where to find strength in christ and in him alone. Father, I pray, I pray for my friends here who have not trusted in Christ, that they would abandon every reliance in their own strength, and that they would come to Christ and find in him the strength that they need for this life and for the life to come. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.